Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Hey folks, welcome back to Making Data Simple. Your hostess with the most is here, Al Martin. It's been a long week. We're recording on a Friday. Today, we're going to finish the third part of three-part series on AI Academy. The first one we did was culture and talent management. That was with Kristen Summers. Second one we did on the data framework, which was Suj Perepa and Dick Darden. And the third one, this one today, will be on the AI ladder and AI maturity. With me today, I have, again, I guess she loves us. That's okay. People love us and you know we're, we're getting used to it, is Kristen Summers, who is the just as a repeat, and Kristen, you're going to have to introduce yourself again, but she is the Distinguished Engineer in Cloud and Cognitive Expert Lab. She focuses on artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence and data science with a primary focus on applied research and first-of-a-kind projects. And with me, John J. Thomas here today, the Distinguished Engineer, also in Data and AI Expert Labs. John leads services that helps clients establish what we call the AI factory. We might dive into that. He brings a lot of thought leadership to trusted AI, ML ops, and different stages of the end-to-end AI lifecycle. Here's how I would describe him. Always talking about AI, how we're going to drive AI this, how we're going to do AI that, but he's a good guy. All right, John, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? I'll get, this is your one chance, and then after that, it's all me, and then I get to catch you by surprise. Okay. Go ahead. Thanks, Al. Thanks, Kate, for having us on this call. Folks, I'm John Thomas. I'm a distinguished engineer in IBM State and AI business and very much involved in all things data science, machine learning, AI. And one of the things that I've been focused on the last uh, few years is helping clients operationalize AI. What I mean by that is enthusiasm around machine learning and AI. A lot of the projects that are kicked off do not actually become operational. And there are lots of different problems there. So my focus, my passion has been looking at how do we approach this in a structured way and how do we help clients um, get to that successful outcomes. So that's me. Where were you before services? So before that, I was the uh, technical executive for what's called the data science elite team. Um, So that's, uh, that's an investment team that IBM put together to help clients get started on AI projects. And before that, I was in uh, what IBM used to call the analytics business. And even before that, it, I was with uh, competitive strategy. So a lot of different roles that I've played across IBM. Very nice. And Kristen, you're back. You love us, don't you? Of course I love you. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, so I'm Kristen Summers. I am also a distinguished engineer in our cloud and cognitive expert labs, as Al already uh, mentioned. I work very closely with John on offerings around Uh, operationalizing AI and doing that with a consistent methodology. And I'm really passionate about bringing clients from that original idea that may have a lot of open questions in it and really being a first of a kind all the way through to something that they can apply and use and operate with that makes a difference in their life. All right. So here's my first question. We're we're talking about the AI Academy. You guys got to tell me again what this is. Uh, We're on the third podcast of this series. What is it And like I said to start, we started with culture and talent, then we went in data framework, and now we're with AI ladder and AI maturity. How do those fit together? 
So AI Academy is a package of learning and training to get an overview of AI and what you need to understand in order to get started using AI in your business. So the way these things fit together is to look at, well, what would it mean to bring AI into my organization? What would I need culture-wise and talent-wise? And then, okay, so what does that mean for my data? And then how do I start climbing a ladder towards AI and getting more mature? And how do I know where I am? So all of this creates sort of a basis for an organization to get going or for a leader in an organization to get going and orient themselves to using AI. That's really what these three things are about. Does she get it right, John? She always gets it right. She always gets, gets it right. I know. She does. All right. So we're talking about AI ladder and AI maturity. At a high level, you know, tell us what this is about, John, why it's important and how it integrates with what we've already talked about, culture and talent and data in the data framework. There's a lot of discussion, a lot of talk about AI and most clients or uh, most of the organizations that we work with are on what we would call a journey to AI. But how do you get to AI that actually drives business outcomes, that is successful, that is actually uh, something that transforms the way the company operates and business is done. You don't just get to that point by a team of people writing code and building some models in a experimentation mindset. That's okay. That's absolutely essential. But you got to think through what does it take to go from an idea to a successful business outcome, a business solution that is driven by AI. What IBM is, has been doing is, based on what we experienced working with enterprise clients, we thought of a prescriptive approach to this journey to AI, right? But first and foremost, it is all about data. If you don't have the right data sets, if you can't connect to them, if you can't access them, there is no AI. There is no data science. There is no AI without actual data that is needed to build the rest of the steps. So the first and foremost thing, what we call the ladder, the first rung of the ladder is to be able to access the data. Next comes this challenge of, well, okay, we've got access to a variety of different data types, but okay, do we know where the data came from? Do we know who touched and modified it? Do we even know that it is the right data to work with for our AI work? Who is allowed access to this data? Is it sensitive? Should it be kept in a protected way? So this whole notion of getting the data to be business ready and putting a level of governance and organization around it is the next step. You know, Al, the, the expression is garbage in, garbage out, right? If you don't know what data you're using for all of your data, for all of your AI work, you probably are not going to be able to rely on the outcomes of the AI work that you're doing. So that's, I would call the second rung is about organizing the data. Then the third rung of the ladder, it is about the actual building up of the analytics, the building up of the machine learning and data science models in a very consistent fashion to be able to produce the outcomes that you need. This is where people spend a lot of time, you know, obviously lots of tools, frameworks, libraries, open source innovations available in the space. That's where people spend time building um, the actual AI components and assets. Then the next step is, well, it's not enough that these are built. You know, what good are these if they just stay inside the data science team's workbenches? They need to be actually deployed. They need to be used by business applications. They need to be woven into the fabric of the business processes. 
Otherwise, they are of no use. They are just a cool experiment that never really got anywhere, right? So that's probably the final rung of the ladder. So if you look at it, collect, organize, analyze, infuse is how we talk about the AI ladder. And there is the academy that Christian was talking about earlier provides education, learning material for people to understand each rung of the ladder and how you can progress up this ladder. Good job. So let's get into it. I guarantee you the people that are listening right now are like, oh, that sounds like exhaustion. You know, we go through this AI ladder, collect, organize, analyze, infuse. Seems so simple. But, you know, even when you talk about it, it's like, that's like, I don't even know where to stop. I'm going to go eat lunch. I'm going to do something else. You've got the concept of AI factory. I know we've used different terms. How does that make it easier to accomplish this AI ladder and embrace whatever level of maturity you're facing right now in AI? My observation about the AI factory is that we start with meeting you where you are. Typically, we would start with what we call solution planning, where we would look at potential AI applications that you would aim for, potential problems you can solve, identify one, and then really dive into specifically what it's going to take to solve that. And then we would work on building it out and getting it deployed and operating it in the ways that John was talking about when he was describing AI factory. And what that does is it means that as you look at building it out, you can go through those rungs of the ladder relative to a particular concrete goal. It can be incredibly overwhelming if you look at all your data that you have anywhere and say, I have to organize all of this, get full governance over it, figure out all the ways I can analyze it, and then move up to infusing in my workflow. When will it ever end? But you can start with a particular goal in mind, and the AI factory gives you a structured way of working towards that goal. And then you can expand from there and repeat, and you'll get more and more used to doing things with this structured methodology as you do it, and it'll become easier. Your organization will have the muscle memory to take on the next AI challenge and the next and the next. How do we meet clients where they are? How do we best do that and expedite or accelerate the process? Well, you know, the way we approach this is, and again, it's, it's very much dependent on where the client is to, to Christian's point earlier and where they need help. This is a client who is looking to start this journey. It could be just understanding what use cases are practical. I mean, sometimes you have fanciful ideas in terms of how to use AI in the business, but can we take a structured approach to understanding those use cases, coping and prioritizing them? We can help there, right? Or it could be that some of the organizations we work with have got a very nice practical approach to scoping and prioritizing and even building models, but maybe struggling with aspects like, well, how do I actually get this deployed? Or they could be struggling with aspects of trusting AI, which has become, by the way, um, a big, big topic these days, right? So it depends on where you are, where our client is in their journey, and then we approach it with a very focused set of offerings. Or it could be an offering which says, we can help you talk through and, and understand how to prioritize a collection of use cases. Or if you have one specific use case you want to go down this journey with, we can help you with building or deploying or managing or monitoring this. And usually the way we, we scope this down is it's to take an agile sprint-based approach. We say, hey, in this sprint, this is what we do. We will set up the data exploration as sprint number one. We will do model building as sprint number two. We will do model testing as sprint number three, and so on. So it's a very structured approach. We take it, make it a collaborative 
uh, exercise between IBM and, and our clients and try to build this expertise as we go through this, building up that muscle memory as we go through the paces of the sprints. But let me ask you this, John, and I'm going to put you on the spot. That's what I do here, as you already know. I'm curious as to why you and your team and Kristen and your, you and your team can do it better. I mean, what's the differentiator? And the reason I say that is because a lot of companies out there that say they can, hey, we'll put your use case into deployments. You know, we'll wrap AI around it, blah, blah, blah. You know, what's the difference here? Because I'm asking this in a manner of trying to uh, help clients make a decision, no matter who they go with, IBM or not, how they're going to make that decision. So if you look at what does it take to do this in a systematic way, you need a platform that can support these different stages of the AI lifecycle. You need a set of best practices for each of those stages. And you need people with skills because it's not just about a data science team. It is about people with data engineering skills, people who understand the business side of things, people who understand the risk aspect of things. So what are the different personas and roles that are, that are needed? Why are we successful? That is because we very consciously bring this people, process, platform mindset together as part of the AI factory. And when we have done that, we find it to be very successful. And the second part of that is we have to do this as a collaborative effort with our clients. It's not just, hey, IBM, come and do this for us and leave. That doesn't help. Yeah, sure, we have got one use case done, but that doesn't build that muscle memory that we were referring to earlier. It doesn't establish the foundation for the factory, which can turn out the next use case and the next use case and the third one, the fourth one after that. Being able to do the systematically makes us differentiated. Yeah, but Kristen, if you, can you peel that onion back one more time? Because if any company has the right people, meaning they got the right skills, AI skills, probably use cases skills, maybe industry skills, if they've got strong methodologies and practices and they have a platform, then they should be on your selection criteria list. That true? I think those are the right categories to look at. I think you're going to want to look at people's skills in terms of both their understanding of your use cases and even soft consulting skills in order to understand what's really important about the AI problem to solve, because that translates down into things like exactly what value are we predicting and also how are we integrating that result and what are we doing with it, as well as looking at core skills in doing AI itself. And then when we look at platform, you want to look at whether there's a platform that will handle the end-to-end needs that you have. We go back to the AI ladder, right? There are different needs about getting your data together and getting it organized that you're going to need in order to access it and analyze it and then infuse those results and integrate them into your workflow. And then in terms of process, Again, it's important to have good processes, not solely for building the models and not solely for deploying them, but for the end-to-end process. But yes, I would look at all of those categories as I'm looking at how to select. And also with the ability to meet me where I am, right? If I'm looking for someone to do AI with me and I have great abilities in DevOps, but I need to expand them to working with my AI models, I'm going to want to find somebody who understands what it means to integrate with the DevOps tools and procedures that I already have. The way I would answer it is this. I'd want to go and work with somebody that has done this a billion times. They know what to expect and what not to expect. 
such that the implementation is accelerated, it's done right the first time, and I get the best ROI. I think that's what you guys offer. That's just my opinion. Fair enough. Now, to your point, when we talk about best practices, the best practices happen or come about because we have done a gazillion of these things, right? It is because we have gone through the blood and sweat of trying to build out enterprise solutions. And from that, we have learned a set of best practices, which become our process. Is that what you essentially mean then, Kristen, when you say meet the client where they are, taking our methodology or practice and matching it up in terms of where the client may find themselves, depending on use case and industry? Yeah, absolutely. Where they are in terms of use case, where they are in terms of industry, where they are in terms of their own processes and their own maturity. And you can really only do that if you've internalized these best practices because you've done them repeatedly, because you really understand them. Let me ask you this. Let's go back to the uh, AI ladder. Again, collect, organize, analyze, infuse. Here's my question for you, John. Uh, You mentioned this earlier, uh, data readiness. When you're kicking off one of these use cases, you're working with a client, how do you determine whether data is ready or not? That sounds like a lengthy, laborious process in and of itself. Not lengthy and laborious, but you know, it all comes down to scoping this down to what is meaningful yet can be contained. Kristen referred to this earlier as part of our early solution planning stage. What we do is, hey, what is the use case? What are the outcomes? What do you need? What kind of information do you need to get to those outcomes? Where does that information come from? What are the sources of data that make up that information, right? So we go through an assessment of that as part of that initial scoping phase itself. As part of that, we look at, you know, is the data available? Are the semantics of the data clear? Is, is the data accessible? Now, we're not trying to do this for the entire enterprise. We will never get done, right? It will be a boil the ocean exercise. Instead, scope it down to one specific use case, one specific outcome, look at the information and consequently the data sources needed for that outcome and then answer these data maturity questions only in the context of that use case. That usually allows us to make progress and get to a place where you can do hands-on without having to waste a lot of time. Kristen, you see it the same way? I do, absolutely. <laughs> I hope he does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so let me absolutely. ask you this then. I mean, is this a, once you're determining data readiness, is this a constant process? I mean, you got to keep validating or once you do it, uh, you're able to trust that data for a certain period of time? I mean, how do you ensure the integrity for the long term? That's a great question. And I would say the major assessment is something that's upfront and you do once. Part of that has to do with the processes you're using to maintain that data. And that's what makes you able to continue to trust it while you have those processes in place. So one of the things we look at is, are the semantics well understood? Is the data in a format that you can consistently expect? Things like that. One of the things that we look at when we ask that question is, do you have a process for making changes that means that this team that's working on the AI will absolutely know exactly when it changes and what the change is? If that's the case, then you can rely on that. 
until the process changes. If it's not the case, then you're going to need to repeatedly go back and revalidate. That really kind of brings to the surface how valuable it is and how important it is to have some consistent data governance and data ops going on so that you know you can trust those data sources. Anytime you bring in a new source, of course, you're going to want to validate it in the same kind of way. And just to add on, data drift does happen, right? So, you know, it could be that you've built your models based on historical data, and there is a certain set of patterns in the data that your models have discovered, and you're acting on that. But once these models have been deployed in the real world, it might be that the actual transactions that happen, the actual patterns that come in real time are different from what they had trained and built on. So it is important to monitor that, monitor for data drift in particular, and be able to go and retrain if needed or build or tweak or get to the next version of your data readiness if you see that that is happening beyond and if it's crossing a threshold that you have set. Right. I mean, just to pick up on that, I would distinguish between data readiness and the data that you're using, right? So the data readiness in the way I view it is much more about the data source. Is it well understood? Is it well formatted? Is it representative? Is it consistent? Is it high quality? Those kinds of things. Then there's the question of how you use that data to train it. Some of the things we look at in data readiness are precisely in order to support being able to go back and retrain because the content of the data absolutely is going to drift and you're going to want to monitor for that and sometimes you're going to need to go back and retrain. So these two things really, they're distinct, but they go together very tightly. You both have talked a lot about use cases. Curious as to what is the most practical use cases you're dealing with on a regular basis? There is no such thing as a typical use case, Al. I mean, I think <laughs> we work across pretty much every industry you can think of. Obviously, a lot of financial sector use cases, but healthcare, public, government, you know, retail, manufacturing, distribution, you name it, right? If you ask me what are some of the most recurring use cases, they will fall into two big categories. I would say one where some kind of action has to be done with in terms of recommendations for interacting with the human. It could be the well-understood use cases like a voice assistant, or it could be use cases you're making a decision on how to interact with a person when they apply for a loan or for when they apply for some kind of an action and you've got to make a decision on that. The second class of use cases, I would say, is more around lowering the risk for the company. It could be around fraud prevention, fraud detection. It could be around detecting problems or anomalies in factoring. It could be around you know, issues with money transfer. It could be predicting when a system is likely to face an outage. These are a set of use cases around reducing risk for the company's operations. First category of use cases is around how to interact with others, with humans, through an AI-driven system. Maybe I should ask this question, Kristen. I think when we talk about infusing AI, there is an implied definition there, but what does it really mean to infuse AI? We use infuse AI to mean 
make it a part of your workflow. So it's not sitting off by itself. You don't simply have a model sitting by itself that is producing a prediction and you have to go look at that and then go back to whatever you were doing and there's no relationship between those. To infuse it means as you're doing whatever process it is that the AI is helping with, the AI is right there as a part of it. And whether that's a matter of interactions with conversational AI so that you're talking to a virtual agent as you resolve some issue or get something done, or whether it means that there's a model that's predicting what might be risky in a particular transaction and it's flagged for you as you work through whether you're going to process that transaction is part of what you're normally doing. Let me give a couple of examples, Al. So let's say you are a media company and you're looking to do customer activation through the media that you produce. And let's say that you have an AI model that says, this is the best audience to target. You need to creating this list of target people to go run that activation against. Well, all you have done is created the target list and then it's in some Excel spreadsheet somewhere. It's really not infusing in your business. You could do it, but no, the next step is to say, okay, what are the actual ways in which media is delivered to this audience segment? And can that be dynamically driven by the outcome, the the predictions or the list of uh, targets produced by the machine learning model in a seamless way? Now, if you want a human in the loop, you can definitely do that, but it is not some static thing produced and sitting somewhere else and then a completely separate process that has to pick up from that, right? That's an example. Nice, all right. Look, we've been talking about a lot about the AI ladder, I think. Maybe over-talking about the AI ladder. Let's talk a little about AI maturity. In the last podcast, that was the middle one, I talked about the maturity curve, my definition. So you haven't heard it. So I'd like to hear your definition of an AI maturity curve. Well, I was going to punt and refer to the Gartner maturity model. So Gartner has defined a maturity model of five levels going from basic to opportunistic to systematic to differentiating to transformational. Really, that's going from a very basic level where you're using data sometimes, but data and analytics are managed in silos. The use is not at all consistent through opportunistic where you're starting to formalize it to systematic where there are standard ways of doing these things, but they're still kind of maybe individual, a little bit more separate. There's some strategy and vision up through what they call differentiating when you have executives championing and communicating best practices and ultimately transformational where it's really central to your business strategy. I think mine's better. Where are most clients today though? They use a lot of big words here, basic, opportunistic, systematic. Where are most clients today? Most clients are in the on the lower levels. Um, I think there is an aspiration to get to the transformational levels, but the reality is most clients are not there yet. Most people are on this, what we call the journey, right? Now, there are individual successes that these organizations have. They might have one particular use case that has been uh, deployed and is driving significant business outcomes for certain companies that is sufficient if that use case is core to their business. Many organizations we are working with, they might have one or two, a few that are at that stage, but not at a company level, transformational level. Most of the clients we work with are working towards that level, I would say. AI is not magic. It is not some 
you know, you've got this magical tool and you wave that wand and you throw some data into a toolbox and out comes magical answers. It doesn't happen like that. As organizations progress towards become getting to that topmost level of being transformational, there are lots of different challenges that need to be addressed. Is the AI trustworthy? Is it ethical? Is it conforming to our norms of what is fair and what is not fair, right? Some of these discussions are being driven by uh, an awareness of our role in, in terms of social responsibility. There is a growing set of um, regulations emerging in this space, especially if you look at the EU, there are uh, governing bodies that are now looking at how do I bring ethical approach to, to AI. These are things that, that organizations will have to start thinking about. Fair enough. Hey, look, as we're wrapping up, anything else that we missed? This is the third of the series. Did we capture it? Are we all good? I know you were here for two of the three, Kristen, but anything we miss, anything left unsaid? I would just pick up on John's last point because I think it's often something that people think about too late in the process of working with AI is how are they going to know that it's trustworthy? And you need to think about, do I need explanations of what the AI is doing? Because that can influence what tools you use, what methods you use for AI, and even which questions you're asking of it and how you cast and organize that. How am I going to know that what it's doing is fair? What kinds of unfairness should I be watching for? And then how am I going to validate the accuracy? How am I going to validate that the data that's coming in is similar enough to the data it was trained on and be aware of things like drift? All of that goes into the category in some sense of operationalization, but it's something that it's important to be conscious of through all of the stages that we've been talking about throughout these podcasts. Hey, thank you guys for being here. I appreciate it. I'm not done though. <laughs> now I got the questions I want to ask. All right, here's the questions. Real quick for both of you. What's the most important lesson you've learned with AI? It's not about the, the sophistication of the algorithm at all. That's important. In the bigger scheme of things, that is probably uh, way less important than understanding exactly what the business wants and how can you deliver that. That's probably the number one lesson for me. What about you, Chris? That is a fantastic lesson. There is no substitute for understanding your data. All right. What is AI not very good at? You go first, Kristen. AI is not very good at the subtleties of human judgment. You got to come up with a different answer, John. What do you got? Yeah, this is what I did. When you look at any industry, there is a tremendous amount of domain expertise that an SME would have built up in that space, right? So whether it is healthcare or it is retail or it is whatever industry you are in, there is a, a level of domain expertise that the human brain has picked up and learned and refined over years of experience. AI is not going to be able to replicate that. Let's just be very, very direct about this. All that AI can do is help augment or help with some of the manual um, laborious tasks around it and sort of help automate some of these things in a supplementary way. If you look at the, the expertise that uh, someone in healthcare has, it is not about just being able to consume vast 
uh, information and trying to come up with um, with something that is meaningful. It is about applying the nuances of specific conditions in the context of an individual. And always AI should be in a supporting role, not in the lead role. John, Kristen answered him. Four words, subtleties of human judgment. Took you like a half hour, man. What do you work for in your free time, Kristen? Yeah, I like to read novels and I spend time with my family. Yeah, all right. But what about you, John? You can't use the same question. Nah, saying- I, love, I love to cook. You love to cook. What do you cook? Pretty much everything, but uh, a lot of Indian uh, style food. What do you make better than anybody else? An Indian food called biryani. Look it up. Oh, I love biryani. Nice. All right. Can I come uh, eat at your house after the pandemic, John? <laughs> yes, you're welcome. But not Al. I'm not sure about him. Yeah, all right. See? <laughs> love, hate. All right, John, what's your number one role model? Not related to you. Um, my number one role model is a priest I know. He is 93 years old, 93, has got more energy than a teenager, and has got a very simple way of life, which is help others by leading a life that is meaningful to others. At 93, when I see him, I'm just truly, truly amazed at how focused he is on on that simple message of bringing people together in love and helping others. That's it. That's pretty good. Now, that might be hard to beat, Kristen. You're up. Yeah, I am in awe of John's answer. I'm going to go in a different direction. What comes to mind is a role model at work. He was the chief technology officer at my... Oh, you're too much. Oh, what? Go ahead. I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> he's not talking oh, about just... either. At my old job. He's not an IBMer, and he's retired now. <laughs> sorry. No, yeah. <laughs> he's retired now. I'm sorry. I was kidding you. I was acting like it was me. No, no go ahead. it's okay. Um, he showed me what it meant to have this tremendous technical vision and to be able to move an entire group of people towards it and all just never fail in having the energy and the focus and being able to identify what it would look like to get there. And I just think of him all the time and he was the best boss I ever had. Al, you got your work cut out, Al. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Last question. Uh, and I'll start with you, Kristen, since you were the last one. The book that you recommend most? Something that I read recently that was really kind of amazing was In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado. Good, In the Dream House. Mm-hmm. You got another one? You're, you're getting ready to give me another one. I was. I was trying to come back to, and what do I really recommend the most? I mean, it's very context dependent, right? Oh, that's different cool. people like different things. In some contexts, like Jane Austen and any of her novels, um, in others, uh, like Milan Kundra, The Unbearable Lightness of Being is a constant favorite of mine. That's what I'm going for. And John, you read a lot of Jane Austen, don't you? <laughs> What's your answer recommended most? Come on, man. Uh, well, I thought I was done. Okay. Uh- <laughs> no, you're not done. Dude, you had like 30 minutes to think of an answer. No, I don't have an answer now. Give me one. Come on. Give me one. How about, okay, I'll just look at my table right now and I'll tell you, okay, hands-on machine learning with scikit-learn and TensorFlow. How about that? 
All right. Fantastic. Thanks, guys, for putting up with me. I appreciate you being here. I had some fun. I hope you had some fun, too. I'm sure you'll get me back with the roast later. Uh, but uh, thank you. I appreciate you guys being on the podcast. Thanks for having us, Al. Yeah, thank you so much. And listeners, as always, let us know how we're doing. AlMartinTalksData at gmail.com. Rate us wherever you may listen to the podcast. It's pretty much anywhere. Thank you, and uh, I'll see you on the podcast. See you. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcasts to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, let's go over and out. Out.